Hello, and welcome back to the Giants of the Faith podcast, where we're focused on people from church history who've made an impact for the kingdom of God on this mortal plane. In today's episode, we're looking at the famous Dutch painter Rembrandt. During the course of this episode, any of the compositions that I reference will be linked in the show notes, so check those out if you're interested to see Rembrandt's work. Also, I'm definitely going to struggle with some of the Dutch pronunciations in this episode, and I just want to apologize in advance for that. When I started this podcast, I had a list of people that I might be interested in featuring, but Rembrandt was nowhere on the list. I knew who he was, of course, and I'd seen his work in school, humanities, and art classes, but I didn't understand or appreciate his work from the perspective of a Christian artist. It was Francis Schaeffer's How Should We Then Live that put him on my radar, and I'm glad he did. Like Roy Rogers and Handel that I've profiled before, Rembrandt serves as a reminder to me that Christians can serve God in whatever their profession or calling, and that glorifying Him and advancing His kingdom is not limited to just theologians, pastors, and missionaries. Rembrandt Harmansoon Van Rien was born on July 15, 1606, in the Dutch city of Leiden. His parents were Harman, a miller, and Nieltgen, a baker's daughter, and he was the youngest of nine siblings. Now, they were a devout family. Nieltgen was raised Catholic before she converted, and Harman was Dutch Reformed, and Rembrandt was brought up by them in the fear of the Lord. Rembrandt attended Latin school as a boy, and at age 14, he enrolled in the University of Light. He did not stay at the school long, and he left to become apprentice to a local painter, Jacob von Schwanenberg. Schwanenberg was a painter of historical scenes, but he's best remembered for his depictions of the torments of hell. Rembrandt studied under Schwanenberg for three years as he developed an appreciation for the role of light and its source in his paintings. He then moved to Amsterdam to study under Peter Lassman. While Rembrandt only worked with Lassman for six months, it was likely from him that Rembrandt heightened his appreciation for color and added an attention to the hand, feet, and faces of his subjects. In 1624, Rembrandt opened a studio in Leiden with his friend, Jean Levens. Levens had been a student of Lastman as well, and the two worked together as they started off their independent careers. Rembrandt soon began to take on students, and also began to receive commissions for works at the court at The Hague. In 1631, the studio dissolved and Rembrandt left for Amsterdam, where he would spend the rest of his life. It was the custom at the time for painters of any note or worth to make a pilgrimage or to live in Italy, but Rembrandt chose to forego that and focus on his work in his native land. When he got to Amsterdam, he lived with art dealer Hendrik von Ulenbu for a time. The connection proved fortuitous because Hendrik's influence brought Rembrandt many commissions for portraits, and also in 1634, Rembrandt married Hendrik's cousin, Saskia. That same year, Rembrandt became a citizen of Amsterdam and a member of the local Painters Guild, and he once again began taking on students. The couple had a happy marriage, and an expensive one. They rented a fashionable home on the River Amstel before purchasing a brand new home on the Breestrat. The house was expensive, and, when combined with Rembrandt's expensive tastes, would later become a financial burden. The home was in a new, up-and-coming Jewish neighborhood, and Rembrandt used that to his advantage. 
he often recruited his neighbors, his Jewish neighbors, to stand in as models for his paintings that featured Old Testament biblical Jews. Now, Rembrandt was commissioned to complete a Passion of the Christ series for Frederick Hendrick, the Prince of Orange. The Passion was a series of works depicting some of the final acts of the life of Christ, and was a common series to be painted, or drawn, or etched, or whatever. It consisted of the raising of the cross, the descent from the cross, the entombment, the resurrection, and the ascension. My favorite of these is the raising of the cross done in 1633. In it, Rembrandt painted himself, even in modern for the times clothing, as one of the men in the crowd. He's demonstrating that he himself was responsible and played a part in the crucifixion of our Lord. And it's a reminder to all the elect that Christ died for our own sins and that we as individuals bear the shame and guilt of the necessity of his sacrifice and that ultimately we should rejoice in that sacrifice and give God glory for it. Commissions, fame, and money were pouring in for Rembrandt. He often used his wife as a model in his paintings and the couple was very happy together. But not everything was going his way. He and Saskia had four children, two boys and two girls, from 1635 to 1641, but only one, Titus, born in 1641, lived past infancy, and shortly after Titus's birth, Saskia was taken ill and died in early 1642. And if you look at Rembrandt's drawings and paintings of Saskia during his illness, you can't help but see the grief pouring out of his pen and be moved. Now, Rembrandt was not a perfect man, and will not hold him up here as one. He took as a lover the woman who he'd brought on as wet nurse to his infant son Titus, Girchi Dirch. She'd lived with him for years, but the couple were never wed. Rembrandt had income from a trust set up by his late wife that he would lose if he ever remarried. And eventually, Girchi got tired of the situation and left Rembrandt. She would go on to sue him for breach of contract. Basically, she claimed that he'd convinced her to become intimate under promise of marriage. She won her suit and was awarded an annual alimony from Rembrandt. During the course of his life, Rembrandt produced many, many paintings of biblical scenes, events, and characters. And some of my favorites are David playing the harp for Saul, the Apostle Paul in prison, Simeon in the temple, the Apostle Bartholomew, and the return of the prodigal son. I've put a link in the show notes to a listing of all of Rembrandt's paintings, so you can check these out and others if you're so inclined. And one other amazing work is the Hundred Gilder Print, which is a recreation of Matthew chapter 19. It's a black and white work, but the detail and the lighting are phenomenal. Rembrandt's issues didn't go away with the breakup with Girchi. He took up with a woman, Hendrik Stoffels, who was his maid. The couple were together long enough to be considered legally married, but in 1654, when their daughter Cornelia was born, She was brought up on charges before the Dutch Reformed Church for committing the acts of a whore with Rembrandt the painter. She was censured and banned from receiving communion. Rembrandt was not punished, but only because he was not a formal member of the church. Again, Rembrandt would not marry Hendrikja for the same reasons that he never married Girchi. In 1656, Rembrandt was forced into near bankruptcy. His years of living beyond his means had caught up with him, and he had to sell off all his possessions to pay his creditors. He had in his possession several works of his own and other Dutch masters, suits of armor from Japan, and other Asian imports that showed where much of his money had gone. 
Rembrandt had to give up his home and move into smaller rented quarters. And just to make matters worse, only a couple of years later, the Amsterdam Painters Guild put new rules in effect that prevented someone in Rembrandt's position from selling their paintings and working as a painter. He got around this injunction by having his son Titus and Hendrikia set up an art dealership and hiring him on as an employee. A Rembrandt continued to work fulfilling commissions, but his pride had been struck. It's interesting to note that there seems to be a particular focus on religious paintings from Rembrandt during these turbulent times. It's as if the artist was leaning on his faith, the faith that had been given to him by his parents, but had now become his own. A tragedy struck Rembrandt in July 1663 when Hendrikia suddenly died, possibly of the bubonic plague. Then, in September 1668, Rembrandt's only son Titus was taken by another wave of the plague. Rembrandt had lost nearly everything, and he himself died a year later on October 4, 1669. He was so destitute that he was buried in a pauper's grave. But he didn't die before completing what is one of his most moving works, The Return of the Prodigal Son. In it, Rembrandt depicts the younger son from the parable being embraced by the father. And it's a touching memorial to Rembrandt's own life of excess and sin before his own return to the father. So Rembrandt, not a perfect man, but one who glorified God through his work and left a lasting tribute to his faith for us to enjoy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Giants of the Faith podcast. Until next time, God bless you.